Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, I'll give this little cookie an hour before we're doing the no pants dance. <laughs> Time to musk up. Wow. Never ceases to amaze me. What cologne are you gonna go with? London gentleman or wait? No, no, no. Hold on. Blackbeard's delight. No. She gets a special cologne. It's called Sex Panther by Odeon. It's illegal in nine countries. Yep, it's made with bits of real panther, so you know it's good. It's quite pungent. Oh, yeah. Ooh, it's a formidable scent. <laughs> Stings the nostrils in a good way. Yeah. Brian, I'm going to be honest with you. That smells like pure gasoline. They've done studies, you know. 60% of the time, it works every time. That doesn't make sense. Well, let's go see if we can make this little kitty purr. Hey, sweet cheeks. Got an invite I'd like to extend your way. My God. What is that smell? Oh. That's the smell of desire, my lady. God, no, it smells like, like a used diaper filled with Indian food. Oh, excuse me. You know, desire smells like that to some people. What is that? It smells like a turd covered in burnt hair. Hello, this is Todd Michael Hall with Riot 5, and you are listening to The Hook Rocks with Jay Scott. Are you ready to rock? Evolution, well, you know, we all want to change the world. But when you talk about destruction, don't you know that you can count me out? Don't you know it's gonna be all right? All right. Got a real solution Well, you know We don't love to see the Good evening, everybody. Once again, you are listening to The Hook Rocks. 
the Ultimate Rock Community Podcast. I'm your host, Jay Scott, taking you on another journey in music conversations, music commentary. We are part of the Pantheon Podcast Network, so check them out. You can follow them at Pantheon Pods on Twitter. Search them on the interwebs at pantheonpodcast.com. They've got some great hosts, and we have one of them today, but uh, mentioned a few before our discussion. My boys at Shout Out Loudcast, Carmen Apice, Vinny Apice are both on there. Cobras in Fire, Martin Popoff, who is... Uh, just did an episode with me here a couple of days ago. So like, subscribe, follow wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter. Like us on Facebook. If you're listening on Amazon, Spotify, Apple, wherever, subscribe to us and write us a review. Let us know what you think of the show. Always appreciate your feedback. Always appreciate your thoughts. Hopefully it's positive. And I thank you for listening and tuning in on another episode. As we welcome, like I said, Another Pantheon podcast member of the fa- of the family of the podcast community, and that is Mistress Carrie. What's going on? How are you? How you doing? Hi, thanks for having me. It is a pleasure. You are the host of the Mistress Carrie podcast on Pantheon Cocktails in the War Room, and the Mistress Carrie radio show out in Boston. You just got picked up by Westwood One, so that's exciting news. So you are a very very busy gal. Yeah, I I seem to always find a way to keep every second of every day packed with stuff. <laughs> I don't know how that happens, but it just kind of works out that way. But I like I like being busy, so so I'm good. I'm good with it. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. So Westwood One like launched what last week? Yeah, so um, I was on the air at WAF in Boston for 22 years. I was at the station for 29. And last February, um, after 50 years on the air, the station um, had its signal sold. And I, for the first time in my adult life, was out of a job. And that happened a couple weeks before the pandemic. And then I spent a year so building my studio, which I call MCHQ, which is where I am right now, uh, launched my podcast, launched the video show Cocktails in the War Room. And when all of that stuff started moving, I was convinced I was never going to end up back on the radio again. I had been offered some opportunities early on before COVID hit. And then obviously COVID hit and kind of changed everybody's world, not just mine. And then I had been offered a couple opportunities that required me to move places I couldn't move to. And they just didn't end up working out, even though, you know, I wanted them to. And I was like, you know what? I just don't think I'm ever going to end up on like traditional radio again. And was really trying to imagine my life without radio because I did it for 29 years. And then this Westwood One opportunity came up and they were like, you know, you can, you can, do your thing and and we just want to put you on the air and I was like well that's kind of awesome so that started last week and then Westwood One is owned by Cumulus Broadcasting so when I got the Westwood One job Cumulus Broadcasting was like well a station in your old hometown would love to have you on the air can you do that too so this week I started um on the Pike, which is 
um, a classic rock station in Worcester, Massachusetts, which is right in the middle of WAF's old broadcasting area. And so last week I started on Westwood One. This week I started on the Pike. Long-winded answer. I apologize. That's fine. That's great. So is <laughs> is the Pike, do they take from the Westwood One show or are they two different shows? Two different shows. Okay. Okay. Yeah, because the expectation for a station, you know, where where I grew up working, you know, I, people from Massachusetts, you know they're from Massachusetts because within the first five seconds they tell you. And we're very tribal and we like to talk about ourselves and where we're from and we're very proud of that. So it would be very strange to pick up a show that was focused more for a mass appeal audience in a market that's used to hearing me talk about local stuff all the time. It just, it wouldn't work. So when we were in negotiations about trying to figure out how to do it, um, they were like, do you think you could pull off doing, you know, an exclusive show just for us because we think it would sound better. And I agreed because I know the audience really well. You know, I've had a relationship with these people for almost 30 years. I know what their expectations are and I want to be able to meet and exceed them. So yeah, it's a separate show. It's a lot of work, but it's awesome. We've got lots to get into, but we always start the same way every time we have a first-time guest, and it's the essence of the podcast, The Hook Rocks. Just like every rock song has a moment that sucks you in, every rock band has a moment, whether it's a song, an album, a band, or performance, that hooked them on rock and roll. What was it for you? Music was always present in my house growing up. You know, my parents were 20 and 24 when I was born, so... My dad was big into bands with like horn sections, Chicago, Three Dog Night, The Association. He loved the Beach Boys, stuff like that. My mom loved all of that stuff too. But if I had to cite a specific memory, remember those in the 70s, those pieces of furniture that had the flip top and inside was a turntable and a radio and like an eight track player. Like back when your radio was like a piece of furniture yes. in the house. Yes. My grandparents had that. They had, it, it looked like a, gosh, it was like, it was oak and it was, it was pretty like long. It was about the size of, gosh, maybe like a long kitchen table, but it was narrow obviously. And they would go up against the wall and then they would, Whenever they would want to play a record, because my grandparents were into like big band and all the crooners and everything, they would flip up the top and they would put their album on and they would listen. And the speakers were like built in on the side. Yeah. So ours was built in in the front behind this crazy 70s upholstered like fabric thing. And I remember distinctively listening to the White Album on eight track in the living room of the house. Like what the house I grew up in had that living room that you only went into when company was there or on Christmas. And that's where the stereo was. And I remember, I don't know how old I was, but I was really small. And I remember hitting the, the track change button on the eight track player. 
and listening to the White Album. And I just remember, for some reason, it it struck something in me. And to this day, the Beatles are still my all-time favorite band. Um, They are the foundation, in my opinion, that everything else is built off of. I realized that obviously they were inspired by the blues greats, but I just look at the Beatles as being this game changing band in so many ways. And that moment, I don't even remember what song it was on that a track. I just remember that it was the white album and I was barely tall enough to reach down into that Hutch stereo and press play on the eight track, but it just, it changed something in me. I've always felt that the first hard rock song was on the white album. It was, you know, such a a song that impacted, you know, what came after that. Yeah. What's really funny is that I interviewed Jacoby Shaddix from Papa Roach last week. And he said that Helter Skelter to him is the first heavy metal song because of the way that it just like Paul McCartney, like shredding his vocal cords. And I mean, you know, people credit black Sabbath with like starting heavy metal, but the Beatles, even though not every song had those heavy elements in it, you're right. Like a song like revolution, a song like Helter Skelter, hard rock and heavy metal is, is in that fabric. It's, it's in there for sure. Yeah, Helter Skelter. I mean, you're right. It, it is just an, a, a song that influenced so many other bands that came after that. And one of the things that's also different now is you hear a lot of comments. Everyone's got a comment on social media, but you hear a lot of people believe that the Beatles are overrated. Oh, they're overrated. Oh, they're a pop music band. But people don't understand that back then, they were rock. They were hard rock. That was what it was. I mean, when you consider what was before them, obviously there were the Chuck Berries and the Little Richards and all that stuff yeah. too. But yeah. but but commercially, they were they had they had long hair that was considered long, and they were edgy. And the music structure and how they wrote music very simple. Well, it sounded simple and very short, and be able to grab you with the hook. That is so defined, and that still exists in every genre of music today. So when someone tells me that they think the Beatles are overrated, I either have to you know restrain myself, or I have visions of slapping them, and then you know I just kind of smile at them and go about my way. But it's so upsetting when I hear that because everything we listen to today is all starts with them. It's a very uneducated opinion. And I'll, I'll give you some examples as to why. So in the beginning, the Beatles were that, that pop band from across the pond. Like that, that is how it started. But unlike Elvis, they were a band. Um, if you, the Beatles, unlike any other artist, encompassed the change of arguably one of the most changing decades, the sixties, right? That you kind of went in with this innocence and came out smack dab in the middle of the Vietnam war. I mean, that decade saw change in everything and their music. If you listen to every Beatles album in order from first to last, 
it's the soundtrack of the 60s. You can hear the the drug influence and the change in the mid 60s on Rubber Soul. Like you you can hear it all. The Beatles forced innovation in technology and music, not only in recording, but in performance. I mean, they stopped touring because they didn't make PA systems loud enough to drown out the screaming girls in the stadiums. So they had to drive technology forward to make the PA systems. I mean, where would Metallica's PA system have come from if it wasn't for the Beatles literally not being able to go on the road because they didn't make speakers loud enough? You look at George Martin's influence in the studio and the multi-tracking, the playing things backwards, the sampling, the things that they did with analog tape at Abbey Road Studios and how that has turned into modern day music recording. It's a direct tie back to the experimentation of the Beatles. The Beatles in like Gene Simmons and Kiss marketing geniuses for rock bands. Absolutely. Literally stole everything from the Beatles. And then you look at the viral marketing of something like Paul is dead. That was viral content before the internet. I mean, there are things that literally marketing campaigns are based on the things the Beatles did decades ago that people just don't, never mind the unbelievable songwriting, the Lennon McCartney partnership in songwriting, the experimentation with um, orchestral music and Middle Eastern instruments and just all of the other things that they did. If you really go and look at what the Beatles have done, you, you can't even inhale air to say they're overrated. You just can't. It's, it's foolish to even think that. I've often wondered why people do think that, you know, I mean, is it because it was so long ago? Is it because that now music has changed so much and, you know, rock music has become, it gets edgier every year, every, you know, every every uh, decade becomes a little bit more harder, a little bit more edgier than what the Beatles did, that it's hard for some people, especially at a younger age, to really grasp what that influence was. Because when you ask Gene Simmons, when you ask Ozzy Osbourne, and you ask Robert Plant, and you ask all these artists who came after the Beatles, and you ask them, why did you get into rock and roll? Who was, you know, inspired you? And they all say the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show. Even, yeah, The Edge just said it on the What Drives Us documentary that Dave Grohl did. He said that he was in the suburbs of Dublin, experimenting with explosives as a teenager, and A Hard Day's Night came out, and it showed him that's what he wanted to do for the rest of his life. He just said it in the movie. I think, here's all I can say about the people that hate the Beatles. This is coming from a New England Patriots fan, okay? I've been a New England Patriots fan since I was born. Because I was born in Massachusetts, it's impossible not to be a a Homer sports team fan. And when you are the best at something, everyone just wants to hate you. And all those years that the Patriots were the best in the league, all people wanted to do was say that they sucked. All people wanted to do, Super Bowl after Super Bowl after Super Bowl, was say that Tom Brady was not the GOAT, that he wasn't the greatest quarterback of all time, 
And I think that the Beatles are just that. There's no other way to rebel in rock and roll, which is an art form built on rebellion. You can't just go with the flow and agree that, yes, the Beatles are the greatest rock band that's ever existed because there's that part of you that's supposed to rebel. So it's almost like, well, if I say that, then I'm just a poser that agrees with everybody else. And it's like, well, in this case, be the poser and just agree to it because everyone knows it's true. Like, who are you going to say? The Stones? I mean, are they, you know, in the Mount Rushmore of greatest rock bands of all time? Yeah, probably. But they're not the Beatles. And I just, I don't understand anybody that just doesn't. I mean, just, aren't they still number one artist of album sales of all time? It's like five records or something. I mean, come on, give me a break. Well, I was having a conversation with my 16-year-old son, and I said the Beatles could put out a greatest hits album tomorrow, and it'd be number one on, on the charts. Everybody would go out and buy it. He's like, well, what do you mean? I go, no. I mean, like, it just, it's just fact. Like, a, a songs that have not been released in 50-plus years could be put on a compilation. There'd be a marketing campaign, an ad campaign for this record, and it would be the number one record in that week's rock charts, in the in mainstream charts. Well, what's funny is that a greatest hits album of the Beatle is a box set. You can't put them all on one. That's true. It literally, there's so many of them. I mean, what kills me is people listen to Beatles covers and don't even know, like there are people that think come together as an Aerosmith song because it's so popular as an Aerosmith song and it's not even an Aerosmith song. Or how about Joe Cockers with a little help from my friends? I mean, it's insane to me. And I am so passionate about this, not because I'm a lover of the art form, but because the Beatles are the soundtrack of my childhood and are so closely ingrained with my memories of my mom and just being home and and being introduced to this music. I mean, my dad loved music. My mom... My mom gave me the the ability that like I date and mark the milestones in my life based on what I was listening to at that time. Like there are people that love music and that's the timeline of their life. Like you remember where you were, what you were doing, what you were wearing, what you were eating based on the song. That's how my mom is. Remembers all the song lyrics, all the song titles, you know, goes to all the concerts. I mean, I, my mom, even over the years is like, I mean, I introduced mom to Dimebag Daryl at a concert one time. I got my mom backstage passes and like watching like my mom ask Dimebag Daryl if she should call him uh, Dime or Mr. Bag. (laughs) 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 I took a picture of my mom and my godmother at a concert with Dave Windorf from Monster Magnet, and right before we took the picture, Dave Windorf grabbed my mom's ass. Like, my mom is a lover of music, and I get that from her, and the Beatles is so closely associated with the soundtrack of my childhood and my mom that, like, I have a visceral reaction to people that say they don't love the Beatles. Like, 
I want to thrash them in the face. <laughs> That's not a rational response from no, no, a no. rational, emotionally healthy human being, but I make no apologies for it. Well, also, too, you hear the, you know, people say, oh, they're not rock. They're pop rock. They started pop rock. Do you understand that? Like, they well, are the reason pop rock, popular music, pop rock started. That's, they're, the, they're the creator of that genre. Go and listen to, like we said, Revolution. Go listen to Helter Skelter. Tell me they're not a rock band. If they're not a rock band, why was Aerosmith covering Come Together? Like, don't tell me they're not a rock band. They 100% are. Listen to the, uh, gosh, I forget the song on Dr. Feelgood by Motley Crue, but it's a Abbey Road ripoff. It's, um, I can't remember the song on Abbey Road, but I, you know, every time I listen to the, the, the Motley Crue song, I think it's, God, I, I, it eludes me right now, but well, total well, the influence. Off, the Offspring ripped off Obladio Blada. Yeah, yeah. I mean, come on, man. It's all there, all of it. I just, I love it. I love it all. I, it's, it's a bucket list. People ask me all the time, like what artists, cause I've interviewed a lot of artists over my career and, and you know, what artists are on your short list? And I was like a fucking beetle. I want to interview a fucking beetle. Seriously. There's only two of them left. Like I distinctly remember I was out shopping with my mom and her best friend, Anna. And they made an announcement at Stewart's department store that Monday night over the loudspeaker of the store that John Lennon had just been assassinated after Howard Cosell interrupted Monday night football, which was a Patriots game, by the way, to say that John Lennon had been killed. And I remember, like it was yesterday, trying to figure out why my mom and her best friend, Anna, were hysterically crying in a department store over the death of someone they didn't know. I couldn't figure it out. I mean, I was eight years old and they were crying like the dog died. You know what I mean? I, like, I didn't understand. I was like, did you know them? And they were like, no, like I couldn't wrap my brain around it. You name me another band or another artist where they would have made an announcement on the loudspeaker of a department store because they were killed and that people would just start sobbing in the, in the aisles of the store. That's what that meant. Like that's what that music, that those artists, those songs, those lyrics meant to people. I mean, it's in my mother's will that the calling hours of her wake have Beatles music playing the entire time. It's in her will. I remember being at the kitchen table eating dinner and I don't know if we were watching television or we had the radio on and they made the announcement. I think I was only five at the time and my mother ran out of the kitchen and closed the door to her bedroom and you could just hear her crying in her bedroom. It was, oh, a, yeah. it was a, it was a huge impactful moment in my life. Like someone, like you said, someone that she didn't even know having that much of an impact on your life through the words that they wrote and the music that they performed. And that's the first time that I actually felt the power of music. And it wasn't because of a song. It was because I saw someone act or react to horrible news that John Lennon was shot. It just, 
it's it's something that maybe if you're a little too young, you know, it's like it's like it's a terrible analogy, but just go with me on it. Growing up, you heard your grandparents talk about Pearl Harbor, right? And you just couldn't imagine it because it was so long ago. Anybody that was an adult when 9-11 happened, you, you know what you felt that day. Like, you, you, you know the uncertainty, the fear, the anger, all of it. Like, you remember exactly what was going on. For me, I was on the air, but I, I just, I remember all of it. There are kids growing up now that either were very small or weren't even born yet. I mean, there's people in the military right now that weren't even born on 9-11, which is just mind-blowing to me. And they're going to grow up and think about it as something in a history book that because they don't remember it because they're too young to remember it. And I guarantee you somewhere down the line, a generation or two, they're going to be like, but was it really that bad? But was it, you know what I mean? Because they just can't, because the, the world is going to have moved forward. You know, it's hard for them to understand like, well, not everybody had a cell phone. Well, there was no Twitter. Well, there was no live streaming. Like there was no news getting out. Like they can't even understand how something like that could even happen because the technology was so limited compared to now. And the technology in 2001 wasn't exactly limited compared to how it was, say, during Pearl Harbor. You know what I mean? So I think that as it gets as it gets further and further away from the Beatles actually being a band that made music together and they were already broken up by the time I was even born. But I, but I was raised in the, the aftermath of it, you know, raised. I mean, my, my mom was in high school from 1966 to 1970. I mean, talk about formative musical years to be in high school. My dad graduated high school in 1967 and so those late teen, early 20s years, those are, those are your music years. And, you know, I just think that that's, that's the youth of it, is that they just, they don't understand that the audience that watches the Super Bowl every year is the audience the Beatles had on Ann Sullivan that night. They just don't understand that, it, that there wasn't 10 billion things to watch. There weren't 100 million bands to choose from. The Beatles changed it all in one television appearance. And it will never happen again like that. Never. It can't. It just can't. I always call it the you had to wait generation. You know, I mean, for decades, if you wanted to see something, if you wanted to hear something, you had to wait for it. You had to watch it. You had to be there when it came on. And if it wasn't, if you weren't there, it was gone. Like, you you missed it and you couldn't pull it up on demand you couldn't you know i mean not everybody had a vcr i don't think i had a vcr until i was probably like 11 years old or 10 years old or you know somewhere in that era I right? you know? when we got cable yeah it was like whoa <laughs> totally we got cable. like we were human remote controls right little kids that crisscross applesauce in front of the TV on the floor so that they could change the channel when their dad told them to during the commercials. That was your life as a kid. That was, 
I mean, they used to joke, why do you think we had kids so we didn't have to get up and change the channel? And hit the side of the TV when the, you know, when the reception wasn't that good, you know? Yeah, we, like we were that, like Fonzie punched the jukebox for a reason because it worked. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it worked. it's it's such a, a amazing, you know, topic because I you know, I agree with you. I think it's because it's so long ago where people don't understand the impact. They don't understand that everything they listen to is because of the Beatles. Just the the popularity of music, the way it's marketed, the way it's presented to you. I mean, obviously we absorb it differently because things are digital now. But in terms of these shows that you see music on, you know, Ed Sullivan, of course, started it. But without the Beatles, I don't know if Ed Sullivan would have been the legend that he was right i mean i know he broke a lot of bands but you always associate the ed sullivan show with the beatles because it was such a monumental moment in pop culture in music history all over all over the country oh he wasn't hating those ratings absolutely not yeah he was cashing those checks that's for sure they also were so willing to experiment and we touched on that a few moments ago, like when you got when you get into their deeper catalog or as they moved forward with their music and they evolved as, as musicians and artists, you know, the Rubber Soul, Revolver, White Album, Sgt. Pepper, uh, Abbey Road it was much different than the Beatles that came over from England. Right. And it was on the Ed Sullivan show. I mean, that really took off and that was really experimental. You, you talked about, you know, the Middle Eastern influence and just differences in, in in recording and how things were put together in the studio and how they made music and how just the the uh what do you call it the um the way the the way the song evolved you know through through the three minutes or through the four minutes that it was i mean look at hey jude the the ongoing three minute outro you know of repeating the same thing over and over again and people look at that like you know no band had ever done that before there was not anyone that even touched that we didn't even touch upon the movie part of it too right the concert film part of it the animation part of it i mean i saw so sully from godsmack has a solo project and has released some solo records and he had this fantastic band and they went out and they were playing these really old theaters. It was really cool. He did this amazing thing live and I've known Sully a long time and I don't make a habit of blowing smoke up his ass, but I went and saw him and he, he was like, you know what? I just was, he was talking about the power of music and the energy that a group of people that are united in the love of that music can give off and like how special it was. And he did this really cool thing. And he just started singing like the chorusy parts of songs that people just knew instantly. And he did four or five, six of them, whatever. And then the last one, he just started going, na, 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 na. And everybody just started singing that. And the room, the band wasn't even playing. And it was like 3,000 people standing up at the top of their lungs just singing the na-na-na part of Hey Jude. And it was this perfect music moment because it was the exact point that he was trying to make. 
and it was beautiful. It was so cool. And he didn't have to tell the people ahead of time what songs they were going to be. They just knew them inherently in their soul. Like who doesn't know the na 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 part of Hey Jude? And it was, it was one of the coolest live moments in a concert. And like as condescending as this sounds like, because I've known him for so long and we've come up in our careers together. There was this pride almost this like maternal pride watching my friend do this thing and have all these people in that moment sharing something. And, you know, obviously it ending with a Beatles lyric, like was just so cool for me, but I'll never forget that moment. It was just, it was so cool. And literally everybody, na, 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 na. It's just, it was just really cool. I remember I watching, I remember watching the Nebelworth concert in the nineties and I was really interested in watching Robert Plant because Jimmy Page was going to jam with him during the performance. It was on MTV. So I was all tuned in for that. And Paul McCartney was the headliner. So I left it on and I was watching it. I, Paul McCartney came on and then he ended with Hey Jude. And he ended with the sing-along with what you just talked about that Sully did. And I remember watching the TV. And granted, you know, you, you really can't capture the moment when it's a, I don't know, what do we had, like a 30-inch television set or 30, whatever it was. And you can't really capture the moment. But I remember just watching and hearing and he was going, and to the right, and the people on the right would sing, and then to the left, and he's like, you know, and then down the middle, and then all together, and like everybody was singing. I remember just watching that going, this is amazing. Like everybody, I mean, I don't know how much, how many people were there. I mean, there has to be at least 100,000 at Nubworth. Those That festival was just gigantic back in the day. And I just was, my, my mouth dropped. Like I couldn't believe one man or one song was bringing everybody together in that moment and then to see him live what I think it was 20 years ago 18 years ago I saw him live here in Chicago and he played for four hours without a break four hours without a break and he ended with Hey Jude and to hear that with 20,000 people a fraction of what was at Nubworth do that same thing for me, it still is the highlight of my music concert, you know, my, the concert going experience for me. It was just, I was able to actually witness what it was like that I saw on television. It was, it was so awesome. Can you imagine being Paul McCartney because he wrote it? And can you imagine being Julian Lennon because it's written about you? Like, because it has such profound impact on like me or you, but imagine what that's like. I mean, I wonder if Paul McCartney gets bored of that feeling. He can't, he wouldn't still be doing it in his eighties. I would think to like every night to, to get up in front of those crowds and have them singing those songs back to you. And like, how does that feel to be Julian Lennon to have one of the most iconic songs of all time? be written about you it's just crazy and it was also about the breakup of his family you yeah know, it, 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 it's such a a, a yeah, moment in his life yeah and that's what most people, rock and roll is not coming from a good place i mean yeah 
You know, I mean, when you read the lyrics, you actually, you know, that that song is a lot more than the na 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 that you that you that you talked about. It's it's yeah. a, it's a song about a family breaking up and how a young kid is dealing with that aftermath of that. And you know, it's such a a, a deep song that I don't know if people really fully grasp what that is about. And that was also that's songs a, like that. Well, that's the beauty know? of the Beatles too, right? They did that a lot. They they wrote about things that were sad or, or or but they had like this upbeat you know bright feeling to the song i mean very you know i mean there's helter skelter that we talked about but very few songs really took on a dark tone with them but it was always upbeat but if you actually instead of listening to the melody listen to the lyrics they do sing a lot about some profound things well we're smack dab in the middle of the black lives matter movement right now go listen to blackbird what do you think they were singing about that's what they were singing about that many years ago. My son and I were, were listening to the new Cheap Trick and the new Foo Fighters album, and there's some Beatles influence on there. And I'm in the car with my son, and I forget what song is on the new Cheap Trick album. That, and I go, this is, a, this is a Beatles song. He's like, what do you mean? I'm like, this is, this is, I love Cheap Trick. You know, They're from Rockford, Illinois, but this is a Beatles ripoff. This is a total Beatles influence. We were listening to the Foo Fighters, and I think the song is Chasing Birds. And, yeah. and I'm like, this is a total Beatles ripoff. I'm like, still, to this day, bands who are making music are still ripping them off. And it's not a bad thing. It's not like, oh, my God, they're ripping off. Everybody's done it. Everybody. Well, it's not even that they're ripping them off, because I just interviewed Rick Nielsen from Cheap Trick not that long ago. And we had, I mean, first of all, talk about a guy that can drop names. He's the heavyweight champion of name dropping when it comes to amazing stories because he's just he calls himself i'm just rick from rockford like he doesn't even understand why he's even in the room with half these people like he talked about going to george martin's funeral he talked about what it was like to record with george martin he talked about giving john lennon advice on what guitars to buy because he's a he's an instrument expert because his parents owned a, 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 an instrument store, like a musical instrument store. And so he was raised in it. And he, he talks about his love, not only his love of the Beatles, but his interactions with them and like not being able to believe that his band had gotten to a point where he's like, I mean, he, he sold Jeff Beck guitars when he was a teenager. Rick Nielsen told me the story. Like, he has Rick Nielsen has such high regard for the Beatles that a Beatles influenced song on a new Cheap, cheap Trick record, like he wouldn't even like you can't even call it a ripoff because he would just be like, yeah, it's right. yeah, of course right. it's an homage. It's not a ripoff. It's an homage. Like I'm not even trying to hide it. It's it's I I love the Beatles. So yeah, there you go. There it is, right there. There's not a band that I think embodies the spirit more than Cheap Trick, the Beatles spirit, because, you know, they tie in other influences too as well, but really when you break it down, it is so Beatles driven. And, you know, if there is, there is a band that really carried on their legacy, it's Cheap Trick. And I think it's really funny because even though Cheap Trick is massively popular, like, please don't understand like, please, please don't misunderstand me and think that I'm not saying Cheap Trick is a massive band because they are, but they've always been one of those bands that like music fans, like 
passive rock fans, like they know I want you to want me. They know the Budokan record, like whatever. But like real rock and roll fans look at Cheap Trick in a way that I think the general public doesn't quite understand because I think they don't understand the, the Cheap Trick's influence. And so I think that spirit that you're talking about is totally there. The experimentation, I mean, above all else, Cheap Trick just, like, if, if you're a touring rock band, there's a bar set and it's high and, and Cheap Trick's up there holding it up. Like, even to this day, you go see Cheap Trick, they're giving it 110. Robin Zander's voice sounds great. The show's great. The songs are great. All these years later. And there really aren't that many bands that they've been able to capture the essence of that band in a live recording. You can count them on one hand, the, the artists, where a live record actually got it right. And they're one of them. I mean, they're just amazing. I love Cheap Trick. When you listen to songs like I Want You to Want Me or Surrender, you know, the popular standards that everybody knows Cheap yeah. Trick for, there is that element of, of Beatles influence. I mean, you can almost hear the Beatles singing those songs because of the melodies, of the arrangement. And, you know, even though it sounds simple, it's a lot more complex than what people think it is. You know, it's like a conversation about ACDC. Everybody hears ACDC, Angus Young play or Malcolm Young play. And they're like, oh, that's pretty easy. It's three chords or whatever. And, but you talk, you talk to any guitar player and they'll say, no, it's not. It's not easy to play that. It's not easy no. to, to, you know, what Cheap Trick is doing is not easy. What the Beatles did is not easy. It, it, and that's the beauty of it, right, where it sounds simple, but it's not. It's really not. And, and that is so, such another Dream thing. Police. Dream Police is, like, one of my favorite songs of all time. Like, oh, I love it. album is great. Yeah. It just, it's so good. And it's like... It's like there's Beatles in there, but there's like a little punk in there. And I mean, it's, there's all these little different flavors. It's like this spice mix of cheap trick is a little bit different of the spice mix of everybody else. And you just got a wonderful voice in Robin Zander too. That just, you know, and you know, you hear songs like this house is rocking with domestic problems or, you know, the, uh, Caroline, you know, all that stuff. And those, you know, that, that melody, you know, and, and just the, the, the phrasing and the tongue in cheek lyrics and the, and the way the song is approached, it's God, it, it's just, it's so beautiful. And then when you listen to it and then you put on a Beatles record, it, there's just like this smooth transition of influence into cheap trick. And gosh, I mean, cheap trick was 90 minutes from where I grew up. And, you know, they were all over Illinois, all over the Chicagoland area when I was younger and still are to this day. Um, my, my old roommates, Dax Nielsen, plays on their second album. I used to live with a rock band in my early 20s. So I kind of know a, a people in the Cheap Trick circle. And just to be in the room with, with those guys, at, you know, at, in my early 20s was just like... Look, it's fucking Cheap Trick, man. Like, I try really hard and learn from a very early time in my career that if you want 
to get a good interview or whatever it is out of an artist, don't treat him like a famous artist. Just treat him like a regular person because that's what that like that's how you're going to gain anyone's respect, right? Is just to to treat them well on a human level and find the things that you have in common and so it's very rare that I'm like the fangirl, right? Like I try really hard to 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 be on the clock, meaning okay, yes, I'm talking to Rick Nielsen from Cheap Trick or Alice Cooper or like whoever, but like like treat them with the respect they deserve and and just treat them like a person. I mean, they are at the end of the day a person, right? And I'm sitting there and I was interviewed. I mean, obviously all the interviews I'm doing have been over the internet because of COVID. And I was on a video call with Rick Nielsen and he's like in his house in the room with like all of his guitars and shit. And he's, I mean, he's on a whole other mental level. Like Rick Nielsen's brain is firing on jet fuel when everyone else is on like the cheap gas. Like it's just a different, level of synapses he's got going on he's running around the room with the laptop showing me guitars i mean half the interview he was like fucking around on a guitar and he's like oh look this is john lennon's guitar that he gave me and this is it and i'm going try not to freak out carrie like try not to freak out like rick nielsen is showing you the guitar john lennon gave him and talking about jeff beck and talking about that like He's like, it's like being inside the brain of like, you know, a hard rock cafe, you know, installation or like inside the rock and roll hall of fame archives, because that's what's going on in his head. And it's like, just don't freak out. Don't freak out. Don't freak out. He makes it hard. There are people that make it hard. And the complexity of his songwriting, the talent that you're talking about, I think with any profession, I don't music related or not, the easier something looks, the more effort and work it took to get it there. So Angus Young's guitar parts might seem easy, but it doesn't mean that they are. It's really hard. You could ask any songwriter how hard it is to write a pop song or to write, you know, how hard is it to write Back in Black? How hard is it to write Shook Me All Night Long? That shit's hard. Rock bands have been trying to write one iconic song for their entire career. The streets are paved with failure. And how many does ACDC have? Talk about a greatest hits album that's a box set. They wouldn't all be that iconic if they were easy. Like I said, you know, that's the beauty in it, right? Is is to have the listener <laughs> think that it's, oh, this is just a simple tune and it's three, four minutes and... You, know, you could tap your foot to it, and it's a great song. But like you said, you know there there is there is so much. I, I had I had a luthier on a couple of weeks ago talking about the innovation of Eddie Van Halen, and we were talking about Angus and Malcolm, and he's like, it's not just you know you grab a guitar and you just start playing ECDC because it's simple. It's it's difficult, and people make the mistake of making the assumption that those guitar tones are are rigid, are, are rough, are raw. When actually, he's like, if you have, if you can hear it, they're actually really clean. They're clean riffs, and they're very concise, and they're very to the point, and they don't waste, they don't waste any moment. 
And that's really unique for a two-guitar band to really be that sharp in playing their music. Never mind the fact that when you go see him play it live, Angus Young is running around like a psychopath with his pants off, playing them all. <laughs> like, before I was a DJ in the mid-90s, after I got out of college, I worked as a tech. Like, I was driving trucks, building stages, rigging lights, and I worked show call at different concert venues. And I worked a follow spot at an ACDC show. And it was my job to keep a spotlight on Angus Young for two and a half fucking hours. And let me tell you how hard that is. Being up in the rafters of an arena, trying to keep a light on that fucking guy when he's running around. I'm sorry, am I swearing too much for your show? Not at all. Trying to keep a spotlight on that guy when he's running around like a crazy person while playing some of the most iconic rock songs of all time. AC, there's a really great quote about Angus Young. I'm going to completely butcher it, but he was being interviewed by someone who I apologize for not being able to cite the reference. And someone called in and said something like, ACDC sucks. You've written the same album 12 times or something like that. And Angus Young said, well, actually 13. They don't make like, yeah. They don't make any bones about making the same album. That's that's the beauty of it too, right? I mean, that's what you you put in an ACDC album, and you know what you're getting. Oh, absolutely. That Mike Shu, who was my coworker at the Pike, who I worked at WAF with for 20 years, has the greatest quote. He said, "A case of beer and any ACDC album equals a party," and it's absolutely a hundred percent true. I don't care what kind of beer it is. I don't care which ACDC album it is. Beer plus ACDC equals party, period. He's so right. I quote him all the time. When you look at their last album, Power Up, that was released in November, talk about an album that was so needed for what everybody was going through. And when that album came out, it was like, I'm like, I can't believe a band that's been around since 75, 76, puts out an album like this that is just incredible. There's not a bad song on it. And they had some, I don't want to call them weak albums prior to Power Up, but albums that maybe just didn't connect with me. But this album was just the right time for what everybody was dealing with, with the pandemic and everything that happened over the summer. And you had the election that was toxic. It was just, boom, put on Power Up, and you just instantly felt good. Well, first of all, it's got a, they've done the impossible so many times, right? Imagine having Bon Scott as your front man and then he's gone and you have to reinvent your band. I mean, look at the bands that have tried to replace their lead singer. I mean, obviously the aforementioned Van Halen figured it out, but it was a different band altogether. It's really hard. You know, ACDC, I, I mean, uh, Alice in Chains has tried to do it. Stone Temple Pilots tried to do it. Like it, it's really hard to change your singer and have either equal success or to eclipse the success you had. Imagine that kind of pressure. And then you release fucking back in black. And now imagine you're Angus and your creative partner and your brother is gone. And now you've got to dig through your brother's archives, that legacy, those tapes, that vault in the middle of a pandemic, in the middle of a time when the world is getting ripped apart and sit down 
when what you know with Brian Johnson dealing with his medical stuff, with Phil Rudd, with all of those guys dealing. I mean, it seemed like every day on the air I was talking about how somebody else in ACDC something fucked up was happening, and then you come out with that record. What? <laughs> don't forget. What? Don't forget too. Cliff Williams and said he was retiring if there was not yeah, going to be a Brian. I mean. yeah. The whole band, like every day, someone else in the band had something else going on, and then all of a sudden. I mean, for fuck's sake, Axl Rose was on a, on Dave Grohl's throne with a broken leg fronting ACDC. We were living in the twilight zone for a while. And then all of a sudden, Power Up comes out. And it's like, wait, hold on a second, huh? First of all, hello, NFL. How have you not made them the Super Bowl halftime show? If, if, if they don't figure out how to get ACDC as the Super Bowl halftime show for the Super Bowl the NFL is more of an abysmal failure. And the, I mean, the commissioners hate it in new England anyway, but like, come on, if there is a band that deserves to be the Super Bowl halftime show performers, nobody deserves it more than ACDC because you cannot go to a football game without hearing a half a dozen ACDC songs throughout the game. You can't any sports game. It doesn't matter the league. You can't get away from it. And it has cross appeal too, good. right? Because the halftime show is is basically for the women who come to these shows who maybe have no interest in football that want to watch the Jennifer Lopez or the Shakira, the halftime show. They want to see the outfits and everything. That's great. You know, while you know the guys get up and they go pig out and eat their food or whatever. But if ACDC is on, the women are going to sit down and watch and the men are going to sit down and watch because it's got that cross appeal to it. Well, first of all, fuck off to anybody that thinks that women just watch the Super Bowl. I, the mean, I mean that. I know. mean that. As, as, no, as, I don't uh, mean you, yeah. but I mean, <laughs> I mean, for people that think that there aren't real, like, like, sport, like, I am a football fan. I have been a football. I'm not a fucking Tom Brady. Oh, I like the Patriots because Tom's cute. Like, that's not me. There are a lot of girls out there. Sure that watch sports because they love it. And I bring it up because there are a lot of girls out there that love rock and roll. And those girls, those women do not get the credit for being lovers of the music the way that they should, because for so long. And I mean, obviously this was especially the problem in the eighties is that, you know, I mean, every music video or whatever is like, well, the girls at the rock shows are groupies like that's, I've been dealing with that stereotype my whole career is trying to trying to get out from under that. Oh yeah. The girl backstage at the show or whatever. Oh, you know, she must be there for the band or whatever and not to do the interview or not, you know, whatever. I mean, luckily for me, I was able to shed that pretty early on in my career, but it was partially because I was aware of it and did and, and went above and beyond to, sh- to shed that, reputation that I think people are so quick to put on women. And that's why I always bring it up. Cause it's like, yeah, we like fucking sports and we like rock and roll and we're girls just accept it. I always, you know, I go to the same Super Bowl party every year for like the last 10 years. And there's this table where all the women sit and they just talk and talk and they talk about the Adam Levine being on the halftime show and, this and that they have no interest in the game and then it's always funny because when the halftime begins they all turn their chairs 
to the TV and, you know, we're all like, I'm not going to watch Shakira and Jennifer Lopez or Adam Levine and his nipples and his, and his tattoos. So I'm going to get up. <laughs> you know, I'm like, I'm, I'm done. <laughs> so, so, but no, you're right. I mean, there are women that are hardcore football fans, hardcore sports fans and hardcore rock and roll fans, but it's for, you know, it's for advertisers too, you know, Pepsi or whoever's yeah. advertising they want. They have that brand name. And, but ACDC would, I mean, would keep people glued to their TV. Everybody at that party would be glued to that TV. Name an artist of any genre that is alive and breathing right now that would not want to be part of that halftime show. There isn't one. There isn't one. Literally every artist would be like, wait, what? Can I I be part of that halftime show somehow? Can I be Angus's guitar tech? Like... ACDC could literally call any artist and go, you want to make a cameo on our halftime show? Yes. The answer would be yes for whoever they called. doesn't matter. It's ACDC. We talked briefly about Dave Grohl, who the front man for Foo Fighters, probably the greatest or biggest modern rock band right now. And one of the things that I appreciate about Dave is how he really does bring back the bands that influenced him and he works with artists I and mean, he worked with Paul McCartney I think on the Sound City uh, documentary he's worked with I Rick, love that documentary oh, man it's, it's great. good yeah he worked with Rick Nielsen on the Sonic Highways album and we mentioned ACDC he just had Brian Johnson on stage and jam with him there's always a a drive for him to bring in the bands that influence him or have them be a part of the music and have their audience listen to those bands or have you see those artists that perform with them. It's such a great thing that he does. I mean, he had David Lee Roth on at the Staples Center, gosh, about five, six years ago, the night before he had Paul Stanley. If there is someone who embodies what rock and roll and what the history of rock and roll is right now it's dave because he has an appreciation of what came before him and he wants his audience to know that what do you what well he you- comes out of a fan i mean i call him the, the biggest whore in rock and roll because he's literally everywhere all the time working on 15 different projects like in that instance i don't call him like whore is not you know the derogatory thing i say the same thing about Corey taylor who's probably the the biggest whore runner up in rock and roll because they're like renaissance men they're they're constantly doing 15 different things and both of those guys are multi-talented absolutely creative and above all things passionate lovers of rock music from a fan perspective that any music like dave grohl i i I, I remember reading, I think it was, I read the interview, but he was talking about like getting invited to Paul McCartney's house, even though he had met him a bunch of times and collaborated with him that like, he's just sitting there like, holy fucking shit. I'm in Paul McCartney's house. Meanwhile, anyone else would be saying the same thing about being in Dave Grohl's house because he's such a huge rock star, but he's still such a fan of the craft, the way that, all rock fans, the fans that listen to our podcast, the fans that listen to the radio shows that buy the records that there's just, you either are like that or you're not. 
And he is like that. Even if he wasn't Dave Grohl from the Foo Fighters, even if he wasn't in Nirvana, he would be buying records and going to shows and like being a passionate end user of the music because he loves it so much. And I think any true rock fan recognizes another true rock fan. And so you got to respect a guy like that. Absolutely. I mean, if you had the keys to the castle like he does, and you can invite these artists on your albums or to perform with you, why wouldn't you do it? Why? Seriously. Yeah. Like, like if I got a chance to invite David Lee Roth up on stage with me, I got a chance to put Rick Nielsen and Joe Walsh on my albums. Uh, yeah, let's do it. Yeah, 100%. I Rick think- Nielsen told me a really funny story about Dave Grohl asking him to do the, um, the, the miniseries that he did. Yeah, the Sonic um, Highways miniseries. Oh, oh, which is one of my favorite albums. I just love that that record so much. And Rick Nielsen was was telling me the story about how Dave Grohl kind of called him, and it was like a last minute thing, and it was like snowing, and he was like, "You couldn't give me any notice." Like it was just really funny to hear Rick Nielsen like like busting Dave Grohl's balls about it. Like, well, can you get me a hotel room so I don't got to drive home? Like it was just really funny. No, I think it's just, it's awesome. I mean, you know, I think he just really embodies what you said. You know, the music fan. We're all music fans when it comes down to it. Anyone that plays rock and roll is a music fan. You don't get into the music without being inspired, without listening to all those records and albums, whether it's rock, hard rock, metal, punk, country, whatever it is, you were exposed to it. And now you have the ability because you become this gigantic rock star like dave is hell yeah let's get this person out oh brian johnson wants to come on stage absolutely oh shit we're gonna jam with jimmy page and john paul jones at wembley fucking stadium fuck yeah you know it's like you know who wouldn't do that and i know people give him grief for it because everybody's got to give him grief on the internet these days because everybody's got to comment but shit i don't i mean i don't know why more bands don't do it I, I don't know. I mean, I think there's in the industry, I think there's a little bit of fear of making mistakes. I also think to go back to that, you know, Patriots analogy of hating the one that's on top, there's a certain amount of that, like you're almost frowned upon for being a fan of other bands and saying you're a fan of those bands and like, which I don't get, but, I think there's a little bit of that. I mean, especially kind of on the punk side to a certain part. And like, you can't maintain your edge if you're like complimenting someone else or whatever. And I think sometimes rock and roll gets in its own way. Cause it's like, if you can't say you're a fan of the artists that inspired you or people that are making great music, like what's wrong with you that if just everything sucks, I often say so much great music out there. I often say that those people who claim that Bon Jovi sucks, you know, it's usually a dude, Bon Jovi sucks. They have at least one Bon Jovi album in their collection. Yeah. I mean, Bon Jovi is a different, like I grew up loving the Beatles and all of that music, you know, when I was a kid growing up. But when I really started discovering my music, the era of music that I liked myself, it was in the eighties, you know? I mean, I have these great pictures of like, of me 
with like pyromania shirts on and like junior high school. And like, that was like my era. And my band in high school was Bon Jovi. And was I the girl that loved John Bon Jovi because of his hair and because he was hot? Yeah, I was. It is what it is. Talk about the short list of rock stars I've never interviewed. In all these years of my career, John Bon Jovi still. And it's got to be because his people just want to keep me away from him because they're afraid that I'm going to like take his skin and wear it like a jacket. But, um, that's, they an, wrote that's the, an interesting visual. Gary. <laughs> sorry about that. I know it can be a little much. Um, but like they wrote some great fucking songs, man. They didn't sell what 200 million records or something for no reason. Like those songs are wanted dead or alive is a great song. Period. Full stop. It's a great song. It would be a great song if the guy was ugly, but he is not. Well, I think that's what it is, too, because he's a good-looking dude. Sam Bora was a good-looking dude, and, you know, you know, dudes that like like rock music, they got to put down the guy that looks better than them to make them look, yeah. you know, look look better. But I, I agree. I mean, I my second album I ever bought was Bon Jovi's debut album. And I, I mean, Alice Cooper has even gone on record that they wrote some of the greatest songs in in, in the eight in that decade that was has ever been written. Some of the greatest songs ever, not just in the eighties. When you think of like, well, the, the songs still hold up. Go to karaoke night and not hear a Bon Jovi song. Listen to seven different formats of rock and roll and not hear a Bon Jovi song. Like you go into Walmart. And, and yell, wanted! And somebody on the other side of the store is going to go, wanted! Like, it just it just is a thing. Just accept it. It's, they're, it's good. It's okay. And I remember distinctly, like, because I was in high school from 86 to 90, right? So, like, I got out of high school right when, like, hair metal and all of that was, like, on life support and didn't know it because grunge was standing there waiting to pull the plug. And I remember those years, like the 91 to 95 years where it wasn't just uncool. It like the light, it it was like that. Did you see the Bee Gees documentary? I have not. Okay. You got to watch it. It's unbelievable. It's fantastic. And the part of the Bee Gees documentary where the Bee Gees are like the biggest fucking thing on the planet. And then all of a sudden, you know, the disco sucks movement, which was started by a rock DJ, ironically. And overnight, the Bee Gees went from being the biggest fucking thing on the planet to the laughing stock of the music industry. Overnight, to the point where they couldn't even release songs anymore. And that's when, like, Barry Gibb started writing songs for other artists. Shadow writing, because the Bee Gees couldn't do anything because they were so uncool. That happened with hair metal in the early 90s. And it took a long time for rock fans to be able to look back and realize, okay, not all of it was shit. There's some great stuff that came out in that era. And there's a lot of bands that got thrown out with the bathwater. There's bands that got mistakenly grouped in like a band like Tesla got thrown in with the hair bands and they are not a hair band. Like that band the fact that Tesla is not one of the biggest rock bands of all time, I don't understand because you talk about that, you know, that, that grit, that rock and roll soul, that fiber, 
that runs through Dave Grohl, that runs through ACDC, that runs, it, it runs straight through Tesla, man. The cheap trick Tesla, it's all right there. They just got shit by timing. Yeah, and it's yeah. wild for people to go, wait a minute, some of that shit is really good. And now it's okay to be like, no, 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 I love all that. You know, like there's some good fucking records. I even say the you same know, thing about Cinderella. You know, Cinderella, oh, if you God. listen if you listen to Cinderella, I mean, they're basically Aerosmith, right? Night Song, Long Cold Winter are two of my favorite albums. I The whole reason I started dyeing my hair purple, right? So I'm in high school. Night Songs comes out. And all of the photos, everything for that whole album for Cinderella was photographed with this smoky purple light. And none of the guys had purple hair, but it would, they were under purple light. And I was like, God, that would be really cool if your hair was like that color. And I wanted to dye my hair purple when that record came out. And my mom was like, over my dead body, when you move out of this house and you turn 18, you can dye your hair purple, but you're not doing it then. And I, I, I moved out of the house, went to college, and I started college. I was still 17. And on my 18th birthday, I went to a salon in downtown Boston and I dyed my hair purple and it's been purple ever since my 18th birthday. And it's because I fell in love with the color and the way that the hair looked on night songs from Cinderella. I remember that, that album. Yeah. The album it's cover. still purple today. Yeah. I just thought it was like, wow, your hair would look really cool if it was actually that purple color. But if and you- it's been cool uncool like 10 times since then and i've just ridden the wave i'm just like fuck it i'm just keeping my hair that color forever but if you listen to the songs like gypsy road or somebody save me i mean that that embodies oh. it's like a, they're like a 70s rock band they're not hair so metal, good you know? so good and that tom Kiefer like rasp like i love those first two cinderella records are fucking awesome i love them love them yeah, they're a great band. They're a very underrated band that not too many people appreciate. And I've even heard stories where when Tom Kiefer was beginning his solo career, the music was incredible. Every, every, he would send it, and people would love it. And they'd be like, who is this? Tom Kiefer, the guy that used to be in Cinderella. And they'd be like, well, we can't put this out. We can't. We can't. Yeah. It. It's, it's Rock and roll got so snobby for a while. It did. Like, the 90s were a really weird time in rock and roll because – they, they, the nineties started with the hairiest of the hair metal, right? That like the, the, the style was cannibalizing itself. Like how big can you make your hair? How tight can your spandex be? And then the grunge movement came in, which was the total antithesis. And then it was like, I don't want to be famous and taking showers isn't cool. And like that whole thing. And then rock music in the mid nineties became this, agro dick measuring contest where like like women weren't allowed almost you know what i mean like because i started on the air in 98 so i I I love that description by the way (laughs) like it just it, it became like a sausage fest to a certain extent and it and i love all that music like don't get me wrong like you know the tools the deftones the seven dust the corns like i love all of it And it was just really hard being a girl trying to find, because grunge, 
like women had a place like in grunge it, you know it was part of it but like that mid to late 90s new metal like that part of it like there was a there was a really like it literally was a sausage fest there's no other way to describe it and the 90s went from like 9091 pre-grunge is being an art form that was geared towards getting chicks to the shows to an art form at the end of the 90s where like good fucking luck finding a chick at a show <laughs> it's really weird and now rock is finding its way back again I, I was talking to somebody about bands like like Greta Van Fleet right that people are just tooling on but one of the things that people are starting to recognize is that bands like that are making women girl well not women girls I mean just women in general want to go to rock shows again that there's something about the melodic part of it or just whatever that it's like it's bringing back the part of rock and roll that has been missing which is you know there there's always been that adage that like you know the girls got to want to fuck you and the guys got to want to be you for you to be a real rock star you know well, my son, and, my son asks about that, you know, because he loves rock music. And I say, hey, when girls start listening to it, you know it's back. When girls start yeah. wanting to go to rock shows, that's when, because that's the demographic, every, almost every advertiser, young girls between, you know, 15 and 21, you know, that's when, that's when the relevancy of rock will come back, when the, when the chicks well, start girls, listening to girls it. Girls dictate popular music, 100%. Yeah. I mean, the, the target demographic, the target audience, of pop stations is girls and rock bands will get on pop radio when girls decide that that's what they want to listen to. I mean, okay, look at the fucking Beatles. It goes back to the Beatles. They couldn't tour because the girls were screaming so loud. There's, so, yeah, but there's so many new bands. Like you mentioned Greta Van Fleet and the Struts, which I think are the, at the forefront, but there's the bands are like, great. yeah, there's Dirty Honey. There's oh, I love them. Joyous Wolf, who's which is a great yeah. band. South of Eden, yeah. which is an up and coming band. Um, Dorothy has got some really good stuff. She's great. There's so much new stuff that is coming out that it's like it's being celebrated again. It's like the celebration of rock, and I don't know if it's at the level of popularity where you know it, it, it's fully come back but i think it's definitely rising and it's rising every week there's so much new good music i just had miles kennedy on earlier this week who's got an album coming out friday and you know he said you know it's like it's great to be a part of this whole thing it's great to be part yeah. of all this great music that's coming out talk about a hard-working guy there's another fucking guy biggest whores in rock and roll like you can't get that guy to sit still between Flash and Alter Bridge and his solo stuff. It's like, you know, I, just such a great front man and such a great voice. I asked him, I go, do you have a, is it a pretty tight window for you to do a tour on this album? He's like, yeah, you think? <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> you but, know, and he's, and he's got this knack of being in bands with like some of the greatest fucking guitar players ever. Yeah. You know, it's like, oh, I got to go play with Flash. Okay, I got to go back and play with Mark. There, there was that rumor that he was brought in by Jimmy Page when Plant said he was not going to tour anymore. It was when he was not going to do any Zeppelin reunion or, you know, reunion shows or anything. There was a reunion where he was rehearsing with Jimmy Page. I don't know if that's ever been confirmed. 
I don't know, but he's, I mean, you know, if anybody can hit the notes, yeah, it's Miles. Yeah. Although, if you're a guy like Miles, do you want to do it? You know what I mean? Like, do you want to be the guy with the gall to step in and sing Robert Plant's Zeppelin notes? Like, oh, God. Talk about pressure and ridicule coming your way, oh, you know? Yeah. And you better and you better be perfect, which is exactly why Robert Plant's not doing it because he knows he can't compete with himself. He knows So anybody that would step he, into that role. He knows if Robert Plant does a reunion show, he knows within the first paragraph of that review, wherever he's playing, wherever Zeppelin plays, it's gonna be, Well, Robert Plant certainly is not the singer he once was. And he's oh, percent Yeah. He doesn't want and to subject himself to that. He? How could he be? I guarantee you the person writing that paragraph is not what they looked like or sounded like or acted like when they were in the prime of their youth either. You know, sitting there with a giant beer gut and you know what I mean? It's like, come on, man. Like Robert Plant, he's old. We're lucky to still have him. Never mind the fact we're lucky that he gave us the amazing music for as long as they did. And a band that broke up for the right reason. Not because they weren't getting along. Not because they weren't good anymore. They broke up because they didn't feel like Led Zeppelin without Bonham. Like, is there a more righteous reason to break up for a band? I don't think so. No. So why would yeah. they go into it? Like, you know, how many bands would go, well, it was just the drummer. We could just get another drummer and keep going. And they're like, yeah, he wasn't just a drum drummer. He was John fucking Bonham. We're not going to keep going as Led Zeppelin without Bonzo. Like, you got to respect that. Yeah. And, and they've, he said they've it, done it right. Yeah. No, I, I think so, too. He, he said in an interview that because they were such a jam band when they played live, and a lot of it was improvising, that they could never reach that with somebody else. Yeah, and like, and how are you going to put somebody in the position to go, you're the new drummer in Led Zeppelin. I mean, it's a torch that his son to a certain extent is really the only person qualified to do it. And really the only person nobody's going to give shit to for trying anybody else that tries to sit on that drum throne, and try to be the new drummer of Led Zeppelin. They're going to get eviscerated. And not only that, never mind the pressure from outside. Just imagine being a, lo a lover of the music and a drummer that sits down and goes, I'm about to play Bonham's drum parts and try to keep his legacy alive. And I don't put it, I'm not trying to put bands off that, that do it, right? Like bands that replace a member and move forward. Like I'm not trashing on them at all. But when you're talking about iconic bands, Led Zeppelin didn't have a throwaway member of the band. And for Led Zeppelin to be self-aware enough to go, we're a four-piece band. There's only three of us now. We're not going to do it anymore. And then to be self-aware enough for a guy like Robert Plant to go, I can't compete with myself anymore. I go back and listen to recordings of my old radio shows from the late 90s and early 2000s. My voice is like an octave and a half higher than it is right now because... It's a muscle. The more you use it, 
the stronger it gets, it changes. So even my voice, and I'm not Robert Plant by any stretch of the imagination. How could he sound like himself from his 20s? You can't. How's he going to sing Song Remains the Same? You know? You're not, and he knows it. Yeah. He's not, and he knows it. And I respect the hell out of those guys for picking and choosing when they were willing to reunite and what projects and what they were willing to do in order to per, to to preserve the legacy of Led Zeppelin. And I think I think they could have made a shit ton more money than they have if they did it. But look at what people have done. You talk about David Lee Roth. Look at what people have done to David Lee Roth trying to trying to sing those you know Van Halen songs from his prime. I mean, how do you compete with the David Lee Roth from 1984. How? I always, I always find that amazing how people go on and criticize a singer, you know, or, or, or for performing and, and, oh, man, he looks so old. As they sit, you know, on their couch, resting their old-style beer on their beer gut while wearing jorts, you know, jean shorts. And, uh, you know, it's like you've aged, your hairline's receding, you're – you know, I mean, everybody ages. Why wouldn't you think, like, if you go to a show or if you turn on a YouTube video and you expect to see David Lee Roth in 2021 as the David Lee Roth of 1984, what's wrong with you? Like, why would you expect yeah. that? Like, like, are you really anticipating that? You know, I've never gone to a show and I felt, oh, man, you know, they're so old. Because I'm older now, too. Like, I'm, you know, in the same boat, you know? I mean... I don't, my hair is not as thick as it used to be. I'm not as in, in, in the shape I used to be. So why would I expect my rock and roll idol to be the same? Well, not only that, but society puts that expectation on everything. I mean, let, let's be honest, right? We just lost Tawny Katane, who in her heyday was the girl that every girl wanted to be and every guy wanted to be with, right? She was the hottest woman on the planet in the late eighties and early nineties. How the hell do you have a career like that and age gracefully in society's eyes? How, how do, how do you try? I mean, we're, we're in a different era now where obviously, you know, women with, with means, you know, like you look at somebody like Jennifer Aniston or JLo or somebody like that, that obviously has had money and had the ability to kind of, do preventative maintenance or whatever, but like, I mean, women aren't allowed to age at all ever. And that pressure on us is ridiculous. And they're putting it on guys too. It's crazy that, you know, you, you're not allowed to be old. I have a, I've developed a very different perspective on age, like all of that. Like when I was younger, you know, every young person thinks they know everything. They think old people are out of touch. They don't fucking know anything. And now I've lost so many friends young. I I've at that point where, I mean, especially coming out of COVID, I think everybody should have a different perspective on how fragile life can be, you know, 
I look at it as such a badge of honor to have wrinkles and scars and that, you know, your hair turns gray. Getting old is a privilege because not everybody gets to do it. And maybe my perspective is a little altered because of the amount of like military personnel, veterans, first responders, people that literally are like living on the edge of life and death for a living. Like that's their job. So I'm surrounded by these people that have a very different perspective on life. But I have this admiration now for people that I see that are fucking old and wrinkled and still getting up and, and, and getting after it every day. Like I just love it now. And I know when I was younger that, you know, I just looked at age as like, you know, what's that saying that youth is wasted on the young? Like, I was one of those idiotic young people that thought I knew everything and thought old people were just taking up space and stupid. And now I, I understand like how fleeting life can be. And, and you know, if you're getting old, good on you, man. Like wear those wrinkles where, I mean, and this is coming from somebody that still dyes her hair. So I don't want to take shit from anybody that hears and be like, well, why do you dye your hair then? Cause it's purple and it's cool. And you've been like, doing it since you're 18. And I've been doing it since I was 18. Like people are like, what color is your real hair? I'm like, I have no idea. Um, but like, I just have just a different perspective on that. And it's like, how lucky are you to, to be able to get old, to get to the point where you're being criticized for being old? Like, wow. Thank you. You know, like how stupid do you have to be for criticizing someone for living a long life and still living with passion? I mean, I definitely think it's changing. You know, you look at a woman like J-Lo or Jennifer Aniston, they're both over 50, still hot as balls. There was a time where you could, you know, the, the women that were over 40 that you thought were pretty, like, began and ended with, like, Sophia Loren, you know what I mean? And, like, now society is valuing, you know, somewhat older women, but I think you know, the guys have always been the salt and pepper hair, like the distinguished thing. Like they were always viewed as like handsome, distinguished, whatever. But when it comes to your rock stars, it's like, listen, you know, the shit that Keith Richards has been through, you know, you look at the guys from ACDC, you know, even the guys from Metallica, the fact that they made it through the alcoholica era and are still fucking getting after it and making music, like let them get old. Yeah. We're lucky to still have them. We still got Ozzy for fuck's sake. We still got Jimmy Page and Robert Plant and we still got Paul McCartney. I mean, let these guys get old and experiment with the different music. Look at what Robert Plant's doing. Like all this kooky, cool, funky new music that's nothing like Led Zeppelin because he's like, I already did the Led Zeppelin thing. Like, I already did it. I want to try something else. It's just, yeah. I just have this totally different perspective on age now, and I just think, just fucking get old, man. Do it. Well, you look at Eddie Van Halen passing in this past October, you know, and 60, man. 65 years old, and what we wouldn't give to hear a new Van Halen song or a new Eddie Van Halen material, um, and we're and not. That and that wasn't even something, you know, that – that was cancer. I mean, obviously there are going to be people that say, well, his lifestyle smoking, like whatever it is that may be attributed to the cancer, whatever. But how many amazing musicians have we lost too soon? You know, tragically drug overdoses, suicide, like 
whatever it is, how many of them, if we lost where you could look at them and be like, I would give almost anything to hear a new Chris Cornell song right now. You know what I mean? Like, so let these guys, let these guys get old. I mean, they, they made it through hell. Like let them get old and, and celebrate them for it. Well, I think that's a, a great note to end on because this has been a great conversation. This is, one, I think, the first time where I had an idea of what I wanted to talk with you about, and we didn't even touch it. <laughs> we, didn't, <laughs> we, we didn't even get, get even close to it. And But it was Honestly, awesome. I'm really sorry. No, don't be sorry because I got, I got to talk to you again. Now, that's the, that's okay, the thing. Well, I was going to say, like, are you sure there's not anything you really want to ask before we go? Because I feel bad that, like... No, no, no. It was a great conversation. You're the host, I, I fucked up your show. No, you didn't. <laughs> no, no. It was, it's just funny because I'm like, yeah, I want to talk to her about this and, you know, you know, get into this conversation. And we just took off on the Beatles and we talked for 40 minutes on the Beatles. That, Dude, I know. I can't but, help it. I just love them. But why not? I mean, I mean, like I said to you before yeah. we came on, I don't usually plan anything. I have an idea of what I want to talk about, but I don't have a, a you know a draft or an outline of what we're going to cover. And it's the perfect type of conversations to have because we're just going back and forth. It's organic. It's authentic. And we just dove right into the Beatles, which led to Cheap Trick, which led to ACDC, Foo Fighters, Bon Jovi, 80s Rock, and you know, getting old as a rock star. So I I thought it was awesome. That's what makes podcasts great. You know, I'm fairly new to it considering I spent my whole career in radio. And as much as I still love radio, which is why I'm doing it again, I've had these amazing conversations with the guests on my podcast that I never would have had the time to be able to have the conversations because the pacing of radio was so much faster. And being able to set aside time on a podcast to be able to have these conversations until I started doing it, I never understood like where these conversations could go. And then that people would want to hear them too. You know what I mean? That there's actually people that are going to want to listen to you and me talk about the Beatles for 40 minutes. Like there are, because they're just as passionate about rock and roll and the Beatles and all of that stuff as we are. And it's it's been a blessing that has come out of COVID for me and come out of, you know, the disaster of the heartbreak of losing my beloved WAF the way that I did was that I found this love of the conversations that I've been having on podcasts. Not only the people I've been interviewing, but the people that have been amazing enough to invite me on theirs to talk about music and to be able to have the the ability to, to kind of, you know, take the training wheels off and just kind of see where it goes. Like you're sitting at a bar just talking about music, which is just really cool. And I think it's what makes people love podcasts so much and why I think they're so successful because when you get a bunch of people or two people or whatever that are passionate about something to start talking about it, you're just going to get a real conversation. That's real life. That's, that's good stuff. So I appreciate you having me on, even though it was, hijacked by our tangent after tangent and I'll come back anytime and you can ask me all the questions that you planned that we never got to. I, I was not planning to talk about the Beatles, <laughs> but I'm glad we did because I think it's such yeah. a great topic and uh, thank you for that because I love the perspective. I love uh, your thoughts on it 
and, and everything. I mean, going from that and the cheap trick, you know, the, they were not on the radar when I, when I picked up the phone to call you tonight. And, uh, but I'm thankful I did because it was a fantastic conversation. People are always surprised when I talk about the Beatles. Like, they're like I wouldn't be somebody that would love them or something. I don't know. It just, it always surprises people when they say, well, who's your favorite band? And I'm like, the Beatles. And they're like, what? I thought it would be like Tool. And I'm like, oh, they're up there. But, you know, they're just, I don't know. I just, I just love them. I'm just such a fan of music. You know, I just, I love it so much. I have a hard time talking shit about even the bad music because I just, I just love it so much. And I, I don't have any musical ability and I'm so envious of people that can create something out of nothing, you know, that can sit down with this inanimate object and make it play and create a song that I'm going to hear and attribute to memories. And I'm just so envious of the people with that kind of talent. And I found a way to kind of be around it as much as I can be and surround myself with it, even though I don't have that ability, you know what I mean? That like, I at least get to, to be around that creative energy all the time. And, um, I'm just such a huge fan of it that, um, talking about it, listening to it, going to shows when we're allowed to do such things. Um, I just, I love it. And I don't understand people that aren't like that. And I know they're out there. I just don't understand them. People often ask me why I never talk about things I don't like, like the music I don't like. I said, that's for any comment section you can find on the internet. You know, people railing against something, people saying bad stuff about this artist and that. I'm like, it's, it's, it's done. I don't want to, I don't want to talk about that stuff. I don't want to dedicate a whole show about something that I don't like because you can find that anytime you turn on the internet. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, you know, people are way more, willing to be negative about something than to, to, than to gush over how much they love it. I mean, that's, that's with anything. And, you know, it's really funny. Like I got married at the end of August in the middle of a pandemic. It seemed like a good idea at the time. And my husband is not the music psycho that I am. He's not even a rock fan, really. Like I'm slowly teaching him about rock music. He's more of like a country guy, which is really odd that I would end up marrying someone that, wasn't even like I, I took him to Metallica the last time they came around, like the stadium tour in 2017, took him backstage, introduced him to James Hetfield. Like I introduced Metallica on stage at Gillette stadium that night. It was a WAF show and he didn't even like know who James Hetfield was. And he walked in the room and I was like, you're a Marine. How did you not know like who James Hetfield was? Like, they, people literally make videos on the internet of blowing shit up to their music daily. How do you, and it's just so funny, but there's something about it, I guess that must just be refreshing to my brain being surrounded by people that just love rock music so much that I found somebody that, you know, that that's not the thing we have in common. You know, it's, it's hilarious to me. People that meet us, they're like, wait, what? Like, but he, you know, he's slowly learning. I've taken him to some shows and, you know, he's, he's slowly learning. He's figuring it out. Take him to a maiden show. Yeah, he, dude, I, he, he's a Marine. He's still a Marine. He's deployed right now. And a few years ago, he was deployed overseas and I was able to go um, 
fly to fly overseas to meet up with him for a few days. He had a few days leave and we met in Bucharest and I called, I went, I did some searching to see, is there going to be any rock bands that are in Bucharest while I'm there? Could I be that lucky? And Judas Priest was in Bucharest while I was there. So I called the record company and I'm like, dude, can you get me, can you get me on the list for a pair of tickets for this show? And they were like, they're in Romania, Carrie. I was like, I know I'm going to be in Romania. Can you get me some tickets? So I took my husband to see Judas Priest in Bucharest, Romania. Metal fans in Romania are a whole other level of passionate than they are here at home. And he was like, what the fuck is going on? (laughs) But... He, but he, he respected it, you know? I mean, he even bought a t-shirt at the end of the night. Like he was like, okay, this was, I mean, over there, like they were like six year olds sitting on their grandparents' shoulders, singing every word. And it was so funny because he was looking at it from just a completely different lens. He looked at me and he's like, how many times is that guy going to change his jacket? (laughs) (laughs) And I'm like, that's the fucking metal god, man. He's gonna change his jacket after every song. It's he what can he change does. his jacket as many times as he wants. As many times as he wants. But it was so funny that like that was the stuff that he was noticing. You know what I mean? Like, so I would love to take. I think he would love Maiden and and probably you know some of the like Ace is high because he's in the military. Like you look into songs like that and you go, oh wait a minute, there's something there. You know what I mean? Like you're probably that's cool, but. I got to ease them in, man. Like I got to, it's a slow learning curve. You know, I don't want to scare him too early. You know, it's so funny because he's trying to get me to listen to country music. And I'm like, for fuck's sake, like I can't, I can respect the what like the, like Chris Stapleton. He, he like as a songwriter, like I can appreciate his art. I can appreciate the fact that he can craft a song. I mean, if you're going to, if you're going to talk about the artistry of ACDC, you have to be willing to look at an artist like Chris Stapleton and go, okay, he can write a song. You know what I mean? Um, but it has not, I have not been as receptive to my husband's music styles of choices. I'm trying to get him to be with mine, you know? And I, it's so funny because all of his friends are like, how the fuck do you not like this stuff? Cause they're all rock fans, you know? I took my son when he was five. I, I drove down to Kentucky to see Butch Walker because I'm a huge Butch Walker fan. And uh, he's a big producer. He was in this band called Marvelous three years ago. He's, got, he's produced everybody from Keith Urban to Pink to you name it. And he's got his own solo career. And I've always loved his music. So I took him to see when he was five. My son was hooked. Then I took my son when I think he was 12 to see Maiden. And... He was, I mean, I'm sitting next to my son watching Maiden and Number of the Beast, they start playing Number of the Beast and he starts reciting the intro to Number of the Beast and I look at him and I almost got a tear in my eye because I was <laughs> I'm like, so proud. Oh, I'm so proud of you. <laughs> parenting win, I'm so proud of you. And then, and then we walked out of the show and I couldn't hear, this is when I knew I was getting old, I couldn't hear a damn thing. Walking out. Oh, I felt yeah. like I was standing next to an airplane for two hours. I just went and saw them on the last tour. They were fantastic. They, I mean, I feel bad because we're still talking and you tried to end the show. But when when Bruce Dickinson was doing some of his solo stuff, 
years back, he came up on my show, physically came to the radio station. And we had this security guard in the lobby. His name was Ash. And he was this really old Pakistani gentleman with a really thick accent. He was an immigrant. And he and I used to talk all the time about just what an amazing opportunity it was to come to the United States and whatever. I would see him all the time. He was great. And he called me and he was like, uh, Mistress Kerry, there is a man here named Bruce Dickinson. He says he's here to see you. I was like, Ash, let him upstairs. That's Bruce Dickinson from Iron Maiden. Let him upstairs. So Bruce Dickinson comes upstairs to come to the studio, hang out with me on my show. And he brought his son with him who was, I don't know, like 10 at the time. And I believe it's the same son that's like, isn't he in, he's in a band now, right? I'm not sure. So his, yeah. his son comes up, he's in the studio, and I'm freaking out on the air. Like, I crack the mic, I'm like, oh my God, rock and roll royalty, like, oh, whatever, making a big deal. It's Bruce Dickinson, right? Like anybody would. And his son just starts to giggle. And he's this little British kid, so, you know. And I, I, I ask Bruce, Mr. Dickinson, like, if I could turn the microphone on that was in front of his son. And he was like, yeah, sure. And I'm like, what's so funny? And he, he was, he was like, that just, just, you know, you're just making such a big deal out of my dad. And I was like, your dad, in case you weren't aware, kid, is Bruce Dickinson from Iron Maiden. Like, your dad is the epitome of cool. Like, he is, he's a god to us. And he started laughing and he was like, well, he's not a god when he's running around singing in his underpants at home. <laughs> and from that moment, and I'm passing this visual on to you and everyone listening to your podcast. I have this visual of Bruce Dickinson in tidy whities sliding across the hardwood floor like Tom Cruise in Risky Business, like singing Number of the Beast at home. And now... When you think about Bruce Dickinson, you too will have that visual. You're welcome. Well, this was, I was going to say, a great conversation, but you ended on such a sour note. Because now I'm going to picture, <laughs> I'm going to picture the man himself every time I see him now in tidy whities and white socks, half calf. From the innocence of it, like the kid was just, he couldn't understand why. And everybody's dad walks around the house in their underwear, right? But not everybody's dad's Bruce Dickinson. And it's, I got to find the tape. I got it recorded somewhere. I got to find it. I have all my archives. I got to find the interview because it's hilarious. I, I, I don't know if I've laughed that hard. You know, like it, I just was sitting there like, I can't believe Bruce Dickinson's kid just dimed him out live on the radio. <laughs> and I have a picture of me with Bruce Dickinson and his son from that day. And I'm like giving his son like the iron claw, like on the top of his head. The picture's hilarious. It is true. You know, when you do have a teenage son, that's the moment where you have to have pants on in the house at all times because you never know oh, yeah. who's going to walk in the house. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, and even if you're Bruce Dickinson. Well, Carrie, it's been a blast. Thank you for the conversation. Thank you for that story because that is the best way to end this conversation. <laughs> uh, 
You're very welcome. I was uh, I was honored that you asked me to be on the podcast. I really appreciate it, and um, you know, thank you so much. I'm I'm so grateful that the podcast community at large has welcomed me the way that they have. Um, you know, it's been a crazy 14 months for everybody, but you know, for a lot of people, they talk about getting back to normal and I don't have a normal to go back to because the normal for me, I lost my normal a few weeks before COVID. So to, to go into a new career and, and to start something brand new and dive into podcasting headfirst the way that I did and, um, has just like, everybody's just been so cool and the offers to have me on your show and, and to tell your audience, you know, no, Hey, check out her podcast and check out her show and whatever. I just, I really appreciate it. So thank you. Well, we're all doing what we love, right? We all love talking about music and there's other podcasts too as well. And you know, we have that little slice that's music oriented and, you know, I always, I, I'd rather support those who love what we do and love talking music than, you know, kind of look at it as competition because it's really not. It's all the same thing. We're all, we're all, we're all yeah. part of the big piece of the pie. Yeah, we're all doing it a little different too. You know what I mean? It's like we're not all going to come at it from the same the same angle, the same filter, you know, we're, we're all going to see it a little bit differently. And, and that's what makes it awesome. You know, that we're all, that, that there's a place at the table for all of us. Rock and roll is showing the world in a lot of ways. This comes up on my podcast all the time. Like the, the inclusivity, the representation, the openness, the, as long as you're a rock fan, you belong, man. We want you right there with us. It, it, you know, even if I disagree with you about the greatest guitar riff of all time, I'd rather have you at the table and argue with you about the music than, you know, so I just, I just love that the rock community, while the rest of the world is trying to find ways to tear itself apart, that in a lot of ways, the rock community is like, now fuck that man, let's go to a show together and we can argue about the best album in the parking lot. And I love that about this community. So it is, it's great. Yep. Well, thanks, Carrie. I appreciate it. You got it. Anytime. All right, everybody. That's Mistress Carrie from Mistress Carrie's podcast or a host of the Mistress Carrie podcast. You can also find her on Cocktails in the War Room and the Mistress Carrie radio show. Great guest. Great conversation. Always appreciate it. I'm Jay Scott. This is the Hook Rocks, the ultimate rock community podcast, part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Remember to subscribe, follow, like, Wherever you get your podcast, follow on Twitter, like us on Facebook, write us a review, all that good stuff. We will talk to you again soon. Stay safe, stay healthy. Take care. When I get to the bottom, I go back to the top of the slide. Where I stop and I turn and I go for a ride. Till I get to the bottom and I see you again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But do you, don't you want?
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 